1: Welcome to this week's episode of the Modern Mentor Podcast. I'm your host, Rachel Cook. In today's episode, I sit down with Irshad Maji, recipient of Oprah Winfrey's first Chutzpah Award for Boldness. Irshad is the founder of Moral Courage College, which teaches people how to do the right thing in the face of fear. She's also the Director of Courage, Curiosity, and Character for Let Grow, a New York-based organization that helps students build their resilience. A prize winning professor, Irshad currently lectures with Oxford University's Initiative for Global Ethics and Human Rights. Her book, Don't Label Me How to Do Diversity Without Inflaming the Culture Wars, lies at the heart of today's conversation. I learned so much from her, and I wish you the same experience. Well, hi, Irshad. Thank you so much for joining me for today's conversation. It's a pleasure. So I had the great privilege of reading your book, Don't Label Me, How to Do Diversity Without Inflaming the Culture Wars. I have to commend you on your phenomenal timing. I can't imagine just a more necessary and appropriate moment for this book to hit the world.
2: I've been thinking about these issues for years, Rachel, and a lot of my research comes from direct experience, so I'm raring to share it with your listeners.
1: Would you tell us a little bit about yourself? Introduce yourself and tell us how your experience kind of plays into the work you do.
2: Well, you know, I've been referred to as the poster child of multiculturalism. I don't like labels, so I will contradict myself now and give you some of the labels that have been attached to me, you know, woman queer, Muslim, person of color, immigrant or migrant, refugee, and so forth. And by the way, all of those labels are factual. They are all true. The issue that I have with labels is that they come with baggage, any label, that then makes people assume that they already know something about you that may not be true. Labels stop us from engaging one another and really find out each other's backstories. And I think at a time like ours, so polarized, highly emotional and rife with noise, the way to cut through all that clutter is to slow ourselves down and actually speak with one another, not with gotcha questions as if everything has to be a debate but with sincere questions, because we're all pretty damn interesting
1: if we only gave each other a chance to be heard. I love the way that you said that. And I think it's incredibly important because I think there are a lot of people out there who want to be having those conversations, but they have a lot of anxiety around what's okay to say and what's not okay to say and ask. And so... I would love to delve into that with you and get a bit of your advice. But before we do that, there's one thing that I need to ask you about this idea of labels. Because what I hear you saying, correct me if I'm wrong, is that labels can kind of be limiting. They can put us into boxes. They can push us to make assumptions. And yet there is this thing that you say in your book, and I hope I captured this right. But if I've got it correctly, a shoe's a freaking shoe, regardless of any other function it may serve. We need to name things to get on with life. And I thought that that was so funny and so true because the reality is labels may be problematic, but they do also serve a purpose. And I'm so curious about how you think about that.
2: Yes, you are so right. Labels do serve a purpose. A table is a table, except when it's not. If I sleep on the table, it becomes a bed. Um I could carry something in a shoe, And it becomes, you know, what we might otherwise call a bag. Now, I don't want to get too clever here, okay? I recognize we need to name things in order to get on with life. Here's the key to remember, though. People are not things. Things are static. They stay the same. People, actually all creatures, all sentient beings, not just people, are constantly evolving. Whether you see it or not, we are evolving spiritually. We are moving in, you know, uh, in whatever space we have. We don't stand still. And that is why it is doubly important to recognize that unlike things, unlike a table, unlike a cup, unlike a shoe, people are far more complicated and deserve a lot more um, respect for that complexity than we normally give
1: ourselves the time to show. Beautifully said. And that was really helpful. I want to ask you about this idea of having these honest conversations. I know, speaking for myself, so I am a member of Generation X, and I feel like I was raised in an era, and I am, for anybody who hasn't seen a photo of me, I am a white woman. I feel like I was raised in an era, you know, a child of the 80s and 90s, where we were told to be colorblind, right? And to sort of look away from colors. We don't see color, we just see the person. And I feel like that conversation is changing now, right? And I am part of a community of people who was raised in that generation, but now I'm raising my own kids. And I will confess that I find myself wanting to be a part of the conversations, asking the right questions, engaging with people, but also feeling confused about what's okay to say and not say and what's okay to ask and not ask. And I think we feel that in our personal lives and maybe in some ways we feel that even more intensely in our professional lives where we need to be really professional and there's no room for saying the wrong thing. It's a really big question in conversation, but I would love to just get some of your, your thoughts on that.
2: One of the great tragedies of how diversity is practiced these days is that it has become an exercise in labeling. And not just some people throwing unwarranted labels onto other people, but also someone like me, a so-called person of color, taking labels for myself and equating those labels to who I am as a whole. This is very problematic because what it means is if you, Rachel, as a so-called white woman, then ask me a question that somehow rankles me or rubs me the wrong way, I could easily cave to my ego and think, oh, you've just invalidated my entire existence when you were just asking an innocent question. And by the way, a question probably born out of genuine curiosity, which shows that you care about me because you wouldn't be asking those questions if you didn't care about me. So I really, really regret the fear and the anxiety that a lot of, um, quote unquote white people have today. I think that is, um, that, that is something that anybody who uh, advocates for justice has to take some, you know, responsibility for, because again, by making someone like you feel somewhat afraid, we have turned the pursuit of justice into the pursuit of just us. And we are, again, unintentionally, but nonetheless, we are managing to exclude in the name of inclusion. So I'm going to take some ownership. I'm going to take some responsibility for that. Which is why I needed to write this book, Rachel, because in the book, I am equipping all kinds of readers, regardless of their background and regardless of their labels. I'm equipping readers with the skills to start and sustain tough conversations. And so at the back of the book, I've got a key set of steps that each of us can take. And they are steps as simple as... If you feel offended by something, by something that somebody else has said, slow yourself down. Instead of automatically reacting, take a breath. Because when you breathe, you are slow jamming your brain, which is a good thing. It means that you don't give the brain the opportunity to rush to judgment. And you're slowing down the blood rush in your body, which in turn means that you can actually think And not just emote. And that is something so deceptively simple that each of us can do. And yet it is very, very effective. And why should we care to do something like that? Because if you want a conversation to be successful and define that as you will, for example, if you want to be heard, the ironclad law of human psychology is that you must first be willing to hear. If you're not willing to hear someone else, they have no obligation to hear you as well. So there's enlightened self-interest here in taking some of these steps and applying them both to your personal life and, as you so rightly point out, very much to your professional life too.
1: You know, there's one more quote, and I promise this is the last one I'm going to pull out of your book, but you say this thing, here's the contentious bit. A lot of people who think of themselves as marginalized actually wield power, and a lot of the time they're unconscious that they're wielding it. As a result, power's exercised poorly, even destructively. I think this gets at what you're talking about right now.
2: Can I just add to that, Rachel, because I really want listeners to appreciate where I'm coming from. You just told me and your listeners that, yeah, there's that little, you know, sort of voice in your gut in your tummy that says, oh, don't offend anybody. After all, you're wanting to connect with people, not to alienate them, right? Especially in this, again, very, you know, emotional and historical moment that we're all living through. What you've just said in telling me this is that, Irshad, you know, as a person of color, you have the power to approve of me. And when it comes to conversations about race, about Identity about diversity. That is exactly right. I know that some listeners of color may cringe at me speaking this inconvenient truth. But the fact of the matter is that in many aspects of life today, we who were once historically discriminated against have more power than a lot of white people do. Yet because we keep being told, that we are powerless. We don't recognize the power that we have. And therefore, we wind up abusing that power. We wind up telling people like you, oh, it's not my job to educate you. Well, hold on a second. Anybody who wants change in society is, by definition, an educator. You have to raise consciousness. You have to raise awareness among the people who you want to bring on board. So if it's not your job to educate, whose job is it? But by telling you, by telling you it's not my job to educate you, I am stripping you of any motivation to get further involved. I'm making you feel more fearful because, oh my God, what did I say to offend, Irshad, right? And frankly, in some cases, not in your case, I know, but in some cases, I'm alienating people who will then walk away and decide, well, if this is how I'm going to be treated in a so-called just society, then screw justice, I'm going to the other side. And I say in my book, I back it up with research, that this is what has happened with a lot of young white men who have joined the so-called alt-right, you know, the extreme right wing that um, often advocates for white nationalism. So remember how we as justice seekers and as the so-called good guys, how we engage other people influences where our society goes.
1: There was something very liberating in everything that you just said. I, I feel myself breathing a little bit more easily. What I took away from that is a sense of permission to ask questions and be thoughtful about them, but also not be afraid to ask them and start the conversation.
2: That's right. And by the way, Rachel, I have to say, you know, I hear from a lot of my fellow women of color in particular, but Irshad, I am so tired. I am so tired of having to address the same questions of people coming to me whenever there's, you know, something about race in the news I'm tired of having the same conversation over and over again. And what I say to such people is, I hear you. I really do, because in a previous part of my life, I went around the world advocating for reform in my faith of Islam. Those were what my previous books were about. And talk about having the same conversation and hearing the same accusations and having to take up the same questions over and over again. And what I realized, Rachel, was that, If I was tired, I needed to give myself the permission to say, you know what, it's my hour off, or it's my day off, or even it's my week off. I hope you understand that I just need to take a break, but when I've got more energy, maybe we can come back to it. Notice in saying that, I'm not berating you for having questions and for coming to me with those questions. I'm also not relying on you to give me the permission to step back and just take my own breather. I'm giving myself the permission and I am being honest with you about how I'm feeling, but I'm doing it in a way that doesn't erase the motivation you have to keep learning. So again, there are ways, and I show in the book, how we can address what we need and what we're you know, frustrated by without taking it out on others who are genuinely motivated to become
1: our friends, our allies, our supporters. I love that wisdom because, you know, a number of the tactics that you've touched on, be it taking a deep breath to kind of diffuse the emotion a little bit, setting boundaries around what you need and and managing your self-care and being mindful of your energy without blaming the other. These are strategies that are pervasive. They Apply in this context, but they apply in any context, right? In any context, in any conversation, absolutely you should take a deep breath and let your brain slow down and respond from a place of rationality versus emotion. And absolutely you should be mindful of your personal energy stores and set boundaries and care for yourself. And so these are really beautifully universal principles that hopefully people are already familiar with, but can find ways to apply in this context, which becomes really helpful.
2: Right. And again, you know, nobody can make these techniques a habit for you. Only you can make them a habit for yourself by continually practicing them. And you do that, weirdly enough, ironically enough, by going first in the listening department.
1: I would love to shift into a conversation about diversity in the workplace, because I know you have a couple of thoughts on this, and I would love (laughs) to tap into them. From where I'm sitting, almost every company right now, certainly at least here in the United States, is paying attention to diversity more than it was even a month ago. I think for most organizations, it is a priority, but I also think a lot of companies are struggling with how to do it in a way that feels and actually is authentic kind of moving beyond just these scorecards and, and how many people of color do we have? Have we promoted? If you're sitting at work at your virtual office or otherwise, and you're looking around and you're seeing an absence of diversity, how can you be a part of the conversation and a part of the group moving the agenda forward on that? Right.
2: At this very moment, I am debating with myself, Rachel, do I begin to answer your question by explaining what is not the right way or what is the right way? And I'm going to say, let me first explain what is not the right way, just because there's so much about it in the social conversation right now. The wrong way to approach this is what is called the white fragility way. Okay. Now, White Fragility is a book written by a now very well-known diversity consultant. Her name is Robin D'Angelo. And her central claim in the book is that white people's entitlement to feeling comfortable makes them defensive and even hostile when conversations about race need to be had. And so a lot of people are reading this book in order to confirm for themselves that, yeah, I work in a really hostile environment. Well, sorry. Sorry, I'm not going to validate that for you. First of all, D'Angelo speaks truth when she says that white people fit the bill. but, But I would say that many white people get defensive. Yes, not all. Many. But here's the thing to remember. It's not because they're white. It's because they're human. It took me years to appreciate that humans universally, regardless of whether they're white or Muslim or black or female or queer or straight, humans universally respond badly to being blamed. And that's because we all have a primitive part in our brains that gives rise to the ego. And the ego kicks in as a shield whenever we're feeling threatened. So, for tough conversations to succeed, the emotional defenses have to be lowered all around. And only then can we as humans tap into the more evolved part of our brain, the part that allows reason and emotion to coexist, rather than allowing reason to be bulldozed by emotion. So, this is why I would say that if you're in a uh, workplace or in a company or on a team, that requires more diversity. Rather than starting off with the argument that we need more people of color, which telegraphs to the brain, to other people's brains that, oh really, we need more people of color? Oh, I guess that white people no longer matter. Now you didn't mean it that way. Of course you didn't mean it that way. You were saying that we need additional numbers of people of color and whatever the reason for that is. But remember, the primitive brain is threatened, and therefore, we'll interpret that as white people don't matter anymore. Therefore, don't go in the direction of demographics. Start this way. We need more diversity of ideas.
0: It's one thing falling in love with a house.
2: Diversity of ideas means that we want more opinions, more perspectives, and you're not automatically telling white people, therefore, that their day is done. You're saying that even within your group, whatever that group is, you will differ from somebody else in how you think. Therefore, you still matter. It's just that we need more of that, a plethora of ideas. And by the way, that's how innovation works. It's through a plethora of ideas. We've got to become more innovative, and that requires more diversity of ideas. If you start that way, then you can make the case for hiring more people of color, because people who have experienced patterns of discrimination will necessarily have different perspectives than those who haven't. But notice that you are making that case for more people of color because you're pursuing diversity of viewpoint.
1: And so when you talk about the concept of dishonest diversity in your book, have we covered that or is there something different or additional you'd like to say about what is dishonest diversity?
2: In Don't Label Me, I do make the distinction between honest diversity and dishonest diversity. Dishonest diversity slices and dices individuals into categories as if directing people to their so-called assigned places, which is really ironic given that this happens in the name of diversity. (laughs) And and even worse, once we enter into these cages that we've been assigned, these categories that we've been told we're a part of, then individuals through labels are flattened to a single dimension that vaporizes all the rest that makes us human beings capable of similarity and not just of difference. That is what is so dishonest about that kind of diversity. Whereas honest diversity moves beyond labels. It says, look, Rachel, I'll bet you're not like every other white woman. I'll bet you have some of your own ideas, some of your own perspectives. I'll bet that you have individuality As much as you're a member of any given community. And I want to respect you for that individuality. So let's hear, you know, some of your ideas about how we could be doing better at the company or how this project could be managed better. I want to hear your ideas. That treats you as something other than a mascot of the so-called tribe that, you know, people uh, plunk you into. And that is what makes this kind of
1: diversity Honest. It's really about wholeness. It's about integrity. Yeah. And it's interesting because as I listen to how you characterize that, you know, I do a lot of thinking around the idea of diversity and inclusion as a concept. And I feel like here in the US, anyway, diversity and inclusion almost in my mind has become one word, like one long word with an ampersand in the middle. <laughs> Whereas I tend to think about them as separate or different but very related concepts. And I do a lot of work around inclusion separate from diversity. And the way that I talk to executives around that is that diversity for me is largely about representation. Inclusion is is much more about what I hear you describing, which is now we have a breadth of different people with different backgrounds and different ideas sitting around the table. So what practices are we going to use to harness the power of all of that. Um, And I think that in my experience, and I'm I'm curious if this is what you feel like you're seeing, companies are stopping at representation. We hit our metrics, we hit our quotas, check the box, let's not change our behavior. And I feel like that's that's what I hear you advocating for.
2: Yes, exactly right. And so, you know, the way I tend to put it is that, you know, diversity is about counting the people in the room inclusion is about making every person in the room count. And that includes the so-called white straight guy. What I find that it happens in many companies is that they hire, they sort of showcase the team with different skin colors and different genders and ages and backgrounds, and then they leave it at that. And the problem with leaving it at that is, as you've rightly pointed out, that If people aren't engaged for their ideas, then all of this is merely cosmetic and they're frankly being used for their labels rather than, you know, really tapped as professionals and as individuals, right? I do want to say something more about this, Rachel, that from your vantage point, maybe you haven't thought about, but that I need to say, which is that among the reasons a lot of people of color do not express themselves fully in the workplace, it doesn't just have to do with whether the bosses want to hear from them or not. It also has to do with their fear of ticking off fellow people of color by saying something that doesn't jive with the consensus of that affinity group. In other words, there is among a lot of people of color in the workplace, a pressure to toe the line to complain that this isn't right or that we need to be doing something else in order to to keep status among other people of color in this workplace. It becomes an us against them thing. And nobody deliberately creates that environment. But whenever we are in a polarized culture, the question that so-called minorities are always asking themselves is, Can I afford to be seen as part of the other group? Can I afford to be seen as too white? Do I have to stick with my people so that I'm not in trouble with them? And it's so pernicious. It is so insidious. And yet I hear this over and over and over again from people of color in the companies that hire me to consult on their diversity and inclusion efforts.
1: Thank you for sharing that perspective. That was something new for me to think about and to digest. And what I'm hearing as you're speaking is this idea that the people in underrepresented groups are being held captive themselves by labels. It's almost like a need to honor the label that I live inside of. And there's a pressure there. As you're talking, I'm right now in my head, I am picturing a conference room back in the day when we sat in conference rooms. And I am picturing 10 people sitting around a table. And in my brain, nine of those people are white. One of those people is a person of color. One of those white people is looking around feeling very uncomfortable with what she is perceiving as the absence of diversity. And at the same time, the person of color is feeling very intimidated to speak up because she doesn't see anyone else around the room who looks like her. And I'm asking if you could be a fly on that wall and whisper in each of their two ears, what piece of advice or inspiration or guidance would you give to each of those two people I just invented?
2: So what I would say to the sole woman of color in the room is before you decide that you are powerless, ask yourself, how could you approach this issue of getting more diversity in the room? How do you think you could frame your argument in a way that appeals to the company's values? And I would then guide her to maybe position this as, um, you know, we could always as a company use more innovation, Well, folks, you know, innovation is a team process. And the research shows that when you have more diversity of perspectives, that's when innovation happens. And a great way to get more diversity of perspective is to have more diversity itself in the room. So start with the values that would appeal to the company before you decide that there's no way they're going to listen to me. I would say to the white folks in the room that this one woman of color is so much more than her race or her ethnicity. She is what I call in the book, a multifaceted plural. She is more than meets the eye and she may very well have ideas that can boost the bottom line of this company. I would further say to these white folks. um is there anything about you that I don't know just by looking at you? Well, Of course, everybody has something about them and often many things about them that I wouldn't know just by dint of seeing what their skin color is. So I would ask them to tell me, what is it about you that I don't know just because you're white? And then after they finish that little game with me, I would say, "Uh uh-huh, do you think that principle applies to this woman as well? At the next staff meeting... Have everybody do one exercise, uh, on Zoom or WebEx or whatever video conference, uh, you know, platform you use. And that is, what is it about you that you want us to know, but that we wouldn't know just by your skin color? Either people can say something or they can put it in the chat section. And that takes all of one minute to do. And it's a very powerful exercise. In which everybody becomes just a little bit vulnerable, but also recognizes, wow, we really don't understand each other as well as we thought we do. So let's, you know, develop deeper relationships, you know, with one another and really build the trust that then allows us to become a team and ultimately a team that can bring more people in, different people in for the sake of innovation.
1: That is a lovely idea. I really feel like I'm going to embrace that. I think I've been in one too many meetings where the icebreaker question was, tell me the first concert you attended. And there's really just only so much Bon Jovi anybody can process. Well, mine was queen. Mine was queen, by the way, for what that's worth. It's worth a lot. Thank you. Um, so I am going to borrow that, but I promise I will credit you. Right on. Irshad, I cannot thank you enough for being here today. There is a lot that I have taken away from today's conversation. I look forward to sitting with it and digesting it. And I am so grateful for your time and your thoughts today.
2: Thank you so much, Rachel. And just remember, for as daunting as these issues may be, there are actual tips and tactics and techniques spelled out in Don't Label Me that any individual can adopt for him or herself. And I'm hearing from readers around the world who are saying to me, this actually works. So feel empowered by that as we continue the good fight.
1: I hope you're feeling inspired and empowered by Irshad's message today. Do you have a question I can answer? Send it my way. Check out all the links in my bio for the ways to reach me. Or you can check out my website at leadabovenoise.com. Or follow me on the Modern Mentor podcast page on LinkedIn, where I share exclusive tips, videos, and more. Join me next week for another great episode. Until then, thanks so much for listening, and have a successful week.
0: There are any number of reasons you might consider selling your home. To move closer to family, live within a smaller budget, or just wanting a change of scenery.